Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast for culture and entertainment media. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... filmmaker Eliza Hittman, and she joins me to talk about her new movie, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. I was exploring my version of a classical hero's journey. And in the classical hero's journey, there's an antagonist. And in my version of it, there's no antagonist. There's no one standing in her way. But obviously, the system is rigged and exploring that the environment around her is hostile and antagonistic. And in a way that part of coming of age, you know, as a young woman is learning to navigate this tension that exists in your everyday life that comes from the male gaze and male attention. Plus, we discuss the unique themes for film explorers and what it's like to have her movie released during this time of a global pandemic coming out just as movie theaters are shutting down. Here's our interview. Eliza, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you for inviting me. And now in the time since the movie premiered at Sundance, I know I've been saying the title a lot. At first, I felt like I kept messing it up, but I feel like I finally have it down. Like it kind of like rolls out easily. I think people usually can't remember the title and then they've seen the film and then it, you know, lingers with them. And now for people who haven't seen the movie yet, do you mind just describing it? What is Never Rarely, Sometimes Always about? Yeah, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is about a teenager in rural Pennsylvania who is pregnant because of where she is and the lack of access. She is forced to hop a Greyhound bus with her cousin and take a journey to New York City and try and find an abortion clinic and spend 48 hours navigating this chaotic place that they've never been to. And now, before we really kind of get into talking about the movie, I want to just kind of talk a little bit about your year so far. I mean, it's been, it's only April, but it's already been just a remarkable few months. The movie premiered at Sundance, where it won a prize, went to the Berlin Film Festival, where it won a prize. It opened in theaters on Friday the 13th, and then within a number of days, because of a global pandemic, movie theaters began to shut down, and so the movie was no longer playing, And now it's available on VOD sort of months ahead of maybe where you planned on originally having it come out that way. What has these few months been like for you? It's been a whirlwind and simultaneously a marathon, if that makes sense. Because, you know, I finished the film very shortly before we went to Sundance. So I was working and working and working. And I'm a full-time professor. So I was teaching and teaching and teaching. And then hopped on a plane and went to Sundance. And, you know, hopped on a plane and went to Berlin. And then slowly our poor planet, you know, started to suffer from you know, this pandemic. So yeah, all this kind of good energy and bad energy, bad, you know, things happening simultaneously, I would say. What was it like that that weekend that the movie was coming out and people weren't really going to theaters and then to have movie theaters begin to shut down? Like, you've put all this energy into 
your movie and the release and it kind of builds up to this weekend and that kind of doesn't really happen. How, how did you feel at that weekend? Uh, it was an eerie moment, you know, to be out. I went to the Angelica to do a Q&A. At that moment, they were only, they were restricting entry and, you, you know, they only sold half the tickets. And I went out and looked out into the audience and people were scattered and sitting like two to three seats apart. And, the city was desolate and it was, you know, it's just a very eerie, you know, haunting moment, I would say. And obviously, you know, not knowing what to expect in terms of how hard hitting the, you know, virus would be in the city. So I, yeah, I would characterize it as eerie and haunting. And how do you feel now about having the movie come out on on VOD and have that be the way that many people are going to kind of just have the first chance to experience it? I'm happy that the film is out there. I think that things are still in such an unknowable place, you know, where we're living through an open-ended nightmare and we don't know when, you know, it would be safe to be in public spaces again. So I think, you know, in coping, you know, with the open-endedness of everything that's happening in our world, I think it's it's good that the film is out there. And I think that obviously we're in a very vulnerable moment, not just in terms of the virus, but in terms of women's reproductive rights. And politicians are, you know, exploiting the fear and urgency of this moment to push their political agendas to ban abortion. So I hope the film, you know, what it's about reaches people and that the potentially reaches vulnerable women who can't get access to birth control and can't get access to reproductive rights, to their reproductive rights. And now the the movie's actually rated PG-13. And how intentional was that? To me, it's one of those things I I a lot of times forget to think about ratings and, and But then to realize that this movie, as intense as it is, as dramatic as it is, it is PG-13, so that the young women that the movie is about could see the movie when it was in theaters. And, and, you know, now it maybe doesn't really matter as much. But was that important to you, that, like, the group of women that the movie is about be able to see the movie? Yeah, to be honest, I didn't think about it in the writing or the making of the film, what the rating would be. And I sort of naively assumed that the content would dictate the rating. And just because it was about an abortion and very mature themes. And then when we screened for the MPAA, they came back and they said, you know, we counted the amount of profanity in the script and in the film. And the main character says the F word three times. And if you cut it down to one, you can have a PG-13 rating. And my mind was blown. And I said, well, that's, you know, a huge win for this film. So I went back and we dubbed over to F-bombs and you know, we're able to change the rating from R to PG-13. We are able to market and screen the film for younger audiences, which I think is really incredible and beneficial. I saw the movie both in a theatrical experience, like in a movie theater with an audience, and I've seen it at home basically by myself. And it, it, it is a remarkable experience both ways. And I think it says a lot about you as a filmmaker and your style of filmmaking, that it it both 
has this sort of power to it and this intimacy. And I'm really interested in asking you how you feel about that. How do you describe your style of working? I've heard you refer to it as experiential, and I'm sort of interested in what you how you describe the way that you work. I think there's a lot of things that I'm trying to achieve. I am very thoughtful in constructing cinematic tension. You know, the film is all about giving, you know, this public audience access to these deeply private experiences of this, you know, character. And so for me, you know, it's very much a character study, but the success of it is hinged on the execution of cinematic tension. And can you talk a little about your writing process? Like, I, I find it so interesting that I know you like to sort of go to a place, in this case, like small towns in Pennsylvania, and sort of just spend time there, experience what it's like to be there so that the location and the setting really informs your your writing. Why is that? What is it that you feel like you're gaining by by working in that way? I think for this film, it was like a layered process. Like, obviously, I wanted the film to be grounded in authenticity of the process of trying to get an abortion. So I picked a town that I felt like the story could begin in and asked myself as a writer, if I was a young woman here, what would I have access to? And I went into a pregnancy care center, which is depicted in the film, and I took a pregnancy test and I went through counseling sessions because um, I knew, you know, fr- I know from an objective perspective that those centers are deeply unethical. And I didn't want to write from an objective perspective where I might veer into caricature you know, Christian caricature, or I don't know, I, I I wanted to have the experience write about it truthfully. And then I took a bus from that town and I made little video sketches out the window of what the character would see and who would get on and landed in Port Authority and really walked around Port Authority and as if I was the characters and thought about, well, it was the middle of the winter, you know, what would I do here? How would I pass the time? Um, and there's a bowling alley in Port Authority, and there's a burger joint in Port Authority, and a karaoke place. And I just let what was there really inform the narrative. And of course, I spent a lot of time consulting with Planned Parenthood on the medical aspects and talking to social workers and trying to understand what it's like to be on the receiving end of young women who travel from out of state. And now most films that deal with abortion, you know, focus on the decision. And for you, the young the young woman of Autumn, the main character in the movie, she seems very certain of what she wants to do. And that's really not what the story is focused on at all. It's much more focused on the process of what she has to go to to get this procedure done. And what was it that made you want to have that be the focus of the story, to not sort of tell a more sort of typical version of an abortion story? I guess I felt like, you know, one, it's been explored before, like the film about a moral dilemma. And I didn't feel, you know, it didn't feel true to the story I was telling. And I felt like my character was much more decisive. And I feel like most women know, you know, in their heart, you know, what the best choice is for them. Did you expect the film to be controversial at all? I mean, abortion is such a difficult topic in in America. What were you thinking the response to the movie might be? 
I thought the response would be controversial, and it's less controversial than I anticipated. How so? Well, I think that the film is still finding its way out into the world at this moment. And um, I don't think that it's landed quite in the hands of, you know, of our conservative population. I noticed people were writing about it like on a 4chan site and they all plan to give it bad reviews on Rotten Tomatoes or something without having seen it. So I'm kind of like, you know, trying to sort of keep tabs on that conversation a little bit. And it doesn't seem like it's it's not dominating or interfering with the release of the film. And now I've noticed as you've been promoting the movie and doing interviews, so often you're answering questions about the authenticity of your depiction of the procedure, what it's like to go to these different kinds of clinics. Did you expect in making the movie that you would sort of become this de facto spokesperson for reproductive rights? I haven't done so much in promotion or like outreach or activism, but yeah, I mean, I think it comes with the territory of making a film, you know, that you're passionate about. I was hoping to do more, but then the the pandemic happened. I was you know, really hoping to, you know, to do more of a grassroots type screening series with the film around the country and trying to bring it to to more rural areas. So yeah, you know, it was something that I had hoped to do. And now we're trying to find alternate ways to continue the dialogue around the film. Do you see the movie as a work of advocacy? I don't know if it's a work of, you know, advocacy as much as, you know, it puts a face to the face and a voice to the voiceless, you know, and it's really hard to have intimate access to these types of narratives. And I think that the journey in the film, it's a it's a journey that many women take um, and are forced to take and would never speak about. So I do think that the film, you know, does open up a conversation. Because you initially wrote the script some years ago. And so to have the movie coming out when it is, the fact that there's a case coming up at the Supreme Court where Roe v. Wade is going to sort of be up for grabs again, that even in this time during the sort of pandemic, as you mentioned, a number of states have declared abortion a non-essential procedure, despite the fact that there's an obvious sort of ticking clock to a pregnancy. How do you feel about the timing of the movie? The fact that, you know, you could have made this movie any time over the last, I think, almost 12 years And to have it coming out now is just so remarkable. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I I believe abortion is essential and reproductive health is essential. And this is time-sensitive care. So I do think the film has urgency and relevancy. And I hope that audiences watch it and connect to it. The fact that even in the past month, it's become even more relevant, it's incredible. I I can't say I planned it that way, (laughs) but yeah, um, you know, no one stops needing sexual and reproductive health care in a public crisis. So I think it's, you know, the, the film is, you know, very timely. I want to be sure to ask you about the casting of the movie, Sydney Flanagan, who stars in the movie as Autumn. This is her first film role, and that's not unusual for you. You've, you've worked with sort of non-professional or first-time actors before. 
What is it that you like about that? What do you what do you like about working with, say, a performer like Sydney? I really went into the casting process with an open mind, to be honest. You know, I felt like it could be an actor. It could be a first time actor. And my strategy is actually always just to cast the widest net possible, you know, and to work with casting directors who will do that. Sometimes you end up working with a casting director and you only see, you know, a small handful of sessions and they say, these are your picks. And you're like, hmm, I don't know if I see the movie in this in these sessions. And now what? So really, it's my goal to try and see everybody. And in, you know, seeing so many people, I really begin to learn what I think will work. You know, my my job as a director is to use my intuition and think about who will bring the greatest depth on screen to the role. And, you know, Sydney was somebody I met in passing and had followed her Facebook page. I was really moved by some little DIY music video she had made of herself playing music alone in her bedroom. And there was like a sadness to them and, you know, something that was uniquely teenage. I guess I can say like in looking at the casting videos and thinking about them, There were a lot of young women who came in who felt too overtly like victims. And I didn't want the film to be about a victim. And Sydney has a lot of strength. And of course, she's a character in crisis in this moment. But I think we can feel, you know, how how much strength she has as a human being on screen. Because there's a central scene in the movie, it's where the title comes from, where Autumn has gone to a Planned Parenthood and there's sort of this intake survey that she's given. And I want to know how you bring a scene like that sort of from the page to the screen in the sense that there's so much that's unspoken there. And that, you know, I don't know how you convey to a performer like Sydney what she needs to be conveying, what you want, especially the way that you've shot the scene in, in essentially a single unbroken take. How do you go about creating a scene like that? I spent a lot of time workshopping that scene with a real counselor named Kelly Chapman, who I ended up casting in the role of the counselor. I made that decision for a reason impulsively, you know, thinking like the best person we could cast for the counselor is the counselor. And she brought a tremendous amount of warmth and created a safe space for Sydney to really go to a deep place as an actor and as a person. I remember when we shot the scene, the first thing I said is, Sydney, it's a long scene. You know, before we were before we shot it, I said, it's a long scene. Don't worry about the script, you know, up until a certain point. Just answer as yourself. Answer all these questions about your family history. Answer as yourself. You know, if you don't remember, know the answer, then that's okay. I really tried to get her to start the scene from the most personal place possible so that she was able to dig deeper as the scene went on. 
So when she's answering all the questions about her family history and smoking and heart disease and going through all of the 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 questions, she's really she's really responding from a personal place, and it builds into something deeper. You know, that was the the key piece of advice that I gave to her going you know into it. Because to me, the fact that Kelly Chapman, as you mentioned, the sort of other performer in that scene, is not an actress. She actually has that job. That is one of the few roles in the movie where you could have put sort of a name actress. And the decision to, in fact, put sort of a real person who really does that there, I think that says a lot about what you're going for. But was there ever any pressure or any conversations to put someone an audience might recognize in in that role? Yeah, there were conversations about stunt casting that role. There were names floating around like Leslie Jones or Julianne Moore. And I ultimately felt like it would overpower the scene, you know, to put a well-known actor in this most important scene. I thought it would upstage overpower. It wasn't the right choice. It's just not the way that I think about things. And because I had consulted so much with Kelly on the scene as I was writing it, her voice was embedded in my head and it was in the character on the page, you know? So I don't know. It felt like a nice way to kind of honor the work that these women really do. I just couldn't imagine it any other way. But then I am so taken with the fact that Autumn's mother in the movie is played by the actress and musician Sharon Van Etten. And she's terrific in in the role, but she also provides a song, a new song for the end credits. And then her song 17 has been used in a lot of the trailers for the movie. How did you come to cast Sharon? And did you kind of know that she was going to be kind of a utility player for you when she when she joined the project? I was just listening to her music while I was writing Knew she had done some acting work in the OA, although I hadn't seen it at the time, and knew she lived, you know, not far from me. And it was just an idea. And I met with her one day and we connected, and I decided to cast her. It wasn't until the film was finished, actually, that we asked her to write a credit song, which, you know, is a beautiful song that I think complements the film so well. And then I acknowledge that this is a little awkward. I'm a man about to ask you this question, which is going to sound like where are the men in the movie, but that you do make this really strong choice that the male characters in the movie are almost, I think every single one of them is awful. And then many of them that we meet in the earlier part of the movie, any one of them could potentially be the father of Autumn's child. And you never really grapple with how she got pregnant, what those circumstances were. Can you tell me a little bit about that decision that you really wanted to keep the focus on Autumn and not have it be somebody else's story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't want her to share the story. You know, I feel that so many times women and young women are alone in this. um, And that's really what I wanted to focus on. I also think I was exploring you know, my version of a classical hero's journey. And in the classical hero's journey, there's always an antagonist. And in my version of it, there's no antagonist. There's no one standing in her way. But obviously the system is rigged 
and is in her way and exploring that the environment around her is hostile and antagonistic and in a way that part of coming of age, you know, as a young woman is learning to navigate this tension that exists in your everyday life that comes from the male gaze and male attention. I find that I come to care so much about Autumn and I I have so much concern for her in the movie that when it's over, I'm very worried about sort of like what comes next for her. For you, what did you kind of want audiences to be left with at the end of the at the end of the movie? You know, I was hoping for a complex ending. You know, I wasn't trying to create some great emotional release. You know, because obviously her problems still exist and they're waiting for her at home. But in this one moment, she's able to rest. And that was what I was trying to achieve. And now just the the last thing that I, I want to ask you is that so many filmmakers recently, you know, have had a movie that played at Sundance, was a success there. And then actually they have gone on to do a sort of big budget Hollywood studio film and I and I'm I know you've done a little bit of television directing and I'm I'm curious to know what what you see as being next for you not necessarily in the sense of like the exact next project but what is the path that you think is available to a filmmaker like you in 2020 uh, I you know for me I just want to keep making films that are unique and important to me you know if I can find that story that can be told on a much bigger budget, then I'll, you know, pursue it. If not, not. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. But it's really it's really about what I'm excited about more than what the budget is. Well, the movie is never, rarely, sometimes, always. Eliza Hitman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash The Real.